Hi everyone, I'm Alex. Welcome to Reading Poorly. The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Chapter 3, The Night of the Tragedy. To make this part of my story clear, I append the following plan of the first floor of Styles. The servants' rooms are reached through the door B. They have no communication with the right wing, where Ingle where the Inglethorpe's rooms were situated. Um, I'm going to have to describe the map a little bit. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like an upside-down U shape, so like two longer hallways connected by a shorter one at the top. On the left side, the longer hallway, um, on the outside of the U... At the top, we have John Cavendish's room, and then another Cavendish, maybe Mary. I can't. It's hard to read. And then Lawrence Cavendish's room. So there's three rooms um, on the outer sides, mirroring that. So on the right side of the U, at the top, on the outside, we have Alfred Inglethorpe and then Mrs. Inglethorpe. And then Cynthia Murdoch's rooms. Um, and I just noticed that there's a, a connecting door between John and Mrs. Cavendish's room. And then there's a connecting door between Alfred and Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. And one between Mrs. Inglethorpe and Th Cynthia's rooms. Okay. So now on the inside of the U, on the left, we have spare room, spare room, and then my room. So the narrator. Um, whose name I can't even think of at the top, <laughs> at the top of my head. Um, and then on the right, we have spare room, spare room, bathroom. And then in the middle, um, like inside the U is a courtyard. Um, the top side of the U, it says table gallery. So, you know, like a dining room or something. And then there's a staircase to go up um, upstairs. And then um, that B part... Uh, that it mentions door B. That is all the way at the end of the hallway and the upper left part of the U by John Cavendish's room. So basically, <laughs> to summarize, you know, something that is very visual verbally here, one side of the house are the Cavendishes, um, or the, the Cavendish, you know, like generation. Uh, you know, the brother's wife and the friend. And then on the other side is the two Inglethorpes and Cynthia with some other things. So. It seemed to be the middle of the night when I was awakened by Lawrence Cavendish. He had a candle in his hand, and the agitation of his face told me at once that something was seriously wrong. What's the matter? I asked sitting up in bed, and trying to collect my scattered thoughts. We are afraid my mother is very ill. She seems to be having some, some kind of fit. Unfortunately, she has locked herself in. I'll come at once. I sprang out of bed, and, pulling on a dressing gown, followed Lawrence along the passage and the gallery to the right wing of the house. John Cavendish joined us and one or two of the servants were standing round in a state of awe-stricken excitement. I would have put a hyphen there, and she did. 
or at least there is a hyphen there, <laughs> Lawrence turned to his brother. What do you think we had better do? Never, I thought, had his indecision of character been more apparent. John rattled the handle of Mrs. Inglethorpe's door violently, but with no effect. It was obviously locked or bolted on the inside. The whole household was aroused by now. The most alarming sounds were audible from the interior of the room. Clearly, something must be done. "'Try going through Miss, Mr. Inglethorpe's room, sir,' cried Dorcas. "'Oh, the poor mistress!' Suddenly I realized that Alfred Inglethorpe was not with us, that he alone had given no sign of his presence. John opened the door of his room. It was pitch dark, but Lawrence was following with the candle, and by its feeble light we saw that the bed had not been slept in, and that there was no sign of the room having been occupied. We went straight to the connecting door. That, too, was locked or bolted on the inside. What was to be done? Oh, dear, sir, cried Dorcas, wringing her hands. Whatever shall we do? We must try to break or we must try and break the door in, I suppose. It'll be a tough job, though. Here, let one of the maids go down and wake Bailey, and tell him to go for Dr. Wilkins at once. Now, then, we'll have a try at the door. Half a moment, though. Isn't there a door into Miss Cynthia's rooms? Yes, sir, but that's always bolted. It's never been undone. Well, we might just see. He ran rapidly down the corridor into Cynthia's room. Mary Cavendish was there, shaking the girl, who must have been unusual, an unusually sound sleeper, and trying to wake her. In a moment or two, he was back. No good. That's bolted, too. We must break in the door. I think this one is a shade less solid than the one in the passage. We strained and heaved together. The framework of the door was solid, and for a long time it resisted our efforts. But at last we felt it give beneath our weight, and finally, with a resounding crash, it was burst open. We stumbled in together, Lawrence still holding his candle. Mrs. Inglethorpe was lying on her bed, her whole form agitated by violent convulsions, in one of which she must have overturned the table beside her. As we entered, however, her limbs relaxed, and she fell back upon the pillows. That was convenient timing. <laughs> John strode across the room and lit the gas. Turning to Annie, one of the housemaids, he sent her downstairs to the dining room for brandy. Uh, then he went across to his mother, whilst I unbolted the door that gave on the corridor. I turned to Lawrence to suggest that I had better leave them now, that there was no further need of my services, but the words were frozen on my lips. Never have I seen such a ghastly look on any man's face. He was white as chalk. The, handle, or the candle he held in his shaking hand was sputtering onto the carpet, and his eyes, petrified with terror, or some such kindred emotion, stared fixedly over my head at a point on the further wall. It was as though he had seen something that turned him to stone. I instinctively followed the direction of his eyes, but I could see nothing unusual. The, st the still, feebly flickering ashes in the grate 
and the row of prim ornaments on the mantelpiece were surely harmless enough. The violence of Mrs. Inglethorpe's attack seems to be passing, seemed to be passing. She was able to speak in short gasps. Oh, she's alive. <laughs> I thought she had conveniently died at the very moment that they came in. <laughs> Better now. Very sudden. Stupid of me to lock myself in. A shadow fell on the bed, and, looking up, I saw Mary Cavendish standing near the door with her arm around Cynthia. She seemed to be supporting the girl, who looked utterly dazed and unlike herself. Her face was heavily flushed, and she yawned repeatedly. Poor Cynthia is quite frightened, said Mrs. Cavendish, in a low, clear voice. She herself, I noticed, was dressed in her white land smock. I'm not sure what a land smock is. But, you know, some sort of <laughs> pajamas or something. Then it must be later than I thought. Yeah, pajamas. I saw that a faint streak of daylight was showing through the curtains of the windows and that the clock on the mantelpiece pointed close or to close a, to close close upon five o'clock i couldn't decide if it was close or close but i think it's close upon five o'clock you know like you know minutes to five or something i don't know maybe a landsmock is not night attire but morning attire a strangled cry from the bed startled me a fresh access uh, of pain seized the unfortunate old lady the convulsions were of a violence terrible to behold. Everything was confusion. We thronged, we thronged round her, powerless to help or alleviate. A final convulsion lifted her from the bed until she appeared to rest upon her head and her heels with her body arched in an extraordinary manner. <laughs> okay, like the exorcist. In vain, Mary and John tried to administer more brandy. The moments flew. Again, the body arched itself in that particular fashion. And then the bed floated up. No, it didn't. I'm just, <laughs> just thinking of the exorcist, okay? At that moment, Dr. Bowerstein pushed his way authoritatively into the room. For one instant, he stopped dead, staring at the figure on the bed. And at the same instant, Mrs. Inglethorpe cried out in a strangled voice, her eyes fixed on the doctor. Alfred! Alfred, it's her husband, remember. Then she fell back, motionless on the pillows. With a stride, the doctor reached the bed, and seizing her arms, uh, worked them energetically, applying what I knew to be artificial respiration. Energetically working someone's arms is not anything <laughs> that I can see as being artificial respiration, but, you know, this was the early 20th century. <laughs> CPR has come a long way since then, right? My guess is that he's pulling uh, the arms in and out uh, because, like, if you stand up straight and you put your arms out um, like, a, like a crucifix and then down and then up and down, that actually moves your lungs while you're doing it, um, if only a little bit. So that's probably what they were thinking of. He issued a few short, sharp orders to the servants, 
an impet not impetuous, an imperious wave of his hand drove us all to the door. He didn't even need a wand. Uh, he, we watched him, fascinated, though I think we all knew in our hearts that it was too late and that nothing could be done now. I could see by the expression on his face that he himself had little hope. Finally, he abandoned his task, task, shaking his head gravely. At that moment, we heard footsteps outside, and Dr. Wilkins, Mrs. Inglethorpe's own doctor, a portly, fussy little man, came bur bustling in, I almost said bursting, came bustling in. In a few words, Dr. Bowerstein explained how he had happened to be passing the lodge gates as the car came out and had run up to the house as fast as he could, whilst the car went on to fetch Dr. Wilkins. With a faint gesture of the hand, he indicated the figure in the bed. Very sad. Very sad. The, the pause is written in, murmured Dr. Wilkins. Poor dear lady. Always did far too much, far too much, against my advice. I warned her. Her heart was far from strong. Take it easy, I said to her. Take it easy. But no, her zeal for good works was too great. Nature rebelled. Nature rebelled. This guy talks funny. Okay, Dr. Bowerstein, I noticed, was watching the local doctor narrowly. He still kept his eyes fixed on him as he spoke. The convulsions were of a peculiar violence, Dr. Wilkins. I am sorry you were not here in time to witness them. Witness them. They were quite... Titanic? Titanic in character? I mean, Titanic, you know, violent, something like that. Um, makes sense, anyway. Makes sense to me. Um... Okay. Ah, said Dr. Wilkins wisely. I should like to speak to you in private, said Dr. Bowerstein. He turned to John. You do not object? Certainly not. We all trooped out into the corridor, leaving the two doctors alone, and I heard the key turned back or er, turned in the lock behind us. We went slowly down the stairs. I was violently excited. I have a certain talent for deduction, and Dr. Bowerstein's manner had started a flock of wild surmises in my mind. Mary Cavendish laid her hand upon my arm, conveniently, because we all know that he suspects Dr. Bowerstein, specifically because of Mary, but what is it? Why did Dr. Bowerstein seem so peculiar? I looked at her. Do you, do you know what I think? What? Listen, I looked around the others were out of earshot. I lowered my voice to a whisper. I believe she has been poisoned. I'm certain Dr. Bowerstein suspects it. What? She shrank against the wall, the pupils of her eyes dilating wildly. Then, with a sudden cry that startled me, she cried out, No, no, not that, not that, and breaking from me, fled up the stairs. I followed her, afraid that she was going to faint. I found her leaning against the banisters, deadly pale. She waved me away impatiently. No, no, leave me. I'd rather be alone. 
Let me just be quiet for a minute or two. Go down to the others. I obeyed her reluctantly. John and Lawrence were in the dining room. I joined them. We were all silent, but I suppose I voiced the thoughts of us all when at, when I at last broke it by saying, Where is Mr. Inglethorpe? John shook his head. He's not in the house. Our eyes met. Where was Alfred Inglethorpe? His absence was strange and inexplicable. I remembered Mrs. Inglethorpe's dying words. What lay beneath them? What more could she have told us if she had had time? At last we heard the doctors descending the stairs. Dr. Wilkins was looking important and excited, and trying to conceal an inward exultation under a manner of decorous calm. Decorous? Uh, you know, trying to keep decorum, that makes sense, but I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Decorous calm. Decorous calm. Dr. Bowerstein remained in the background, his grave, bearded face unchanged. Dr. Wilkins was the spokesman for the two. He addressed himself to John. Mr. Cavendish, I should like your consent to do, er, to a post-mortem. Is that necessary? asked John gravely. A spasm of pain crossed his face. Absolutely, said Dr. Bowerstein. You mean by that... Um, I guess you mean by that? Or you mean by that... That there's like one of those long dash things and then a question mark. <laughs> so, um, that either Dr. Wilkins or neither Dr. Wilkins nor myself could give a death certificate under the circumstances. John bent his head. In that case, I have no alternative but to agree. Thank you, said Dr. Wilkins briskly. We propose that it should take place tomorrow night, or rather tonight. Oh, or rather tonight. Yeah, because it's morning. And he glanced at the daylight. Under the circumstances, I am afraid an inquest can hardly be avoided. These formalities are necessary, but I beg that you won't distress yourselves. There was a pause, and then Dr. Bowerstein drew two keys from his pocket and handed them to John. These are the keys of the two rooms. I have locked them, and, in my opinion, they would be better kept locked for the present. The doctors then departed. wonder where he found the keys. It would have been nice to have those. <laughs> uh, they were probably sitting around in the room somewhere, but still. I know um, uh, Mrs. Inglethorpe had said something about locking herself in, so the keys were probably just sitting around. But... I had been turning over an idea in my head, and I felt that the moment had now come to broach it. Yet... I was a little chary, shari, it's C-H-A-R-Y, of doing so. I mean, the word I would have put there would be just wary, W-A-R-Y. So, you know, like cautious or concerned or worried or something like that. So um, let's see what we have. Um, cautiously or suspiciously reluctant to do something. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, I can't read pronunciation guys. I should do that for whoever is listening <laughs> for your benefit. I should look up, I, I, I should train myself in how to read pronunciation, uh, so that I can be more authoritative in that. Uh, when I see 
that. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see how that goes as the podcast grows. Right. Yeah. I don't expect it to grow, but <laughs> John, I knew had a horror of any kind of publicity and was an easygoing optimist who preferred never to meet trouble halfway. It might be difficult to convince him of the soundness of my plan. Lawrence, on the other hand, being less conventional and having more imagination, I felt I might count upon as an ally. There was no doubt that the moment had come for me to take the lead. John, I said, I'm going to ask you something. Well, you remember my speaking of my friend Poirot, the Belgian who is here? He has been a most famous detective. Yes. I want you to let me call him in to investigate this matter. What now? Before the post-mortem? Yes, time is an advantage if, if there has been foul play. Rubbish, cried Lawrence angrily. In my opinion, the whole thing is a mare's nest of Bowerstein's. Wilkins hadn't an idea of such a thing until Bowerstein put it into his head. But, like all specialists, Bowerstein's got to be in his bonnet. Poisons are his hobby, so of course he sees them everywhere. I confessed that I was surprised by Lawrence's attitude. He was so seldom vehement about anything. John hesitated. I can't feel as you do, Lawrence, he said at last. I'm inclined to give Hastings a free hand. Hastings, that's the narrator's name. Though I should prefer to wait a bit. We don't want any unnecessary scandal. No, no, I cried eagerly. You need have no fear of that. Poirot is discretion itself. Very well, then. Have it your own way. I leave it in your hands. Though, if it is as we suspect, it seems a clear enough case. God forgive me if I am wronging him. I looked at my watch. It was six o'clock. I determined to lose no time. Five minutes delay, however, I allowed myself. I spent it in ransacking the library until I discovered a medical book which gave a description of strychnine poisoning. I've never actually seen... Well, okay, so I have read this book. It's been so long that I might as well have never actually seen the word strychnine written down. Um, yeah, I've heard of strychnine. I would. It has way more letters than I expected. Um, I'm not sure how many letters I would have expected, but um, it's S-T-R-Y-C-H-N-I-N-E. Um, thank you for listening this long to me reading poorly. <laughs>